Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Kerwin, and on today's episode, I have Dr. Ben Bickman. Dr. Bickman is an associate professor at BYU who conducts research in the laboratory of obesity and metabolism. He has also authored the new book coming out in July 2020 called Why We Get Sick. Ben, so good to have you back on again. Hey, Gary, hey, yeah, my pleasure. Uh, it was so much fun the last time. Uh, doing it again was inevitable. Yeah, and I mean, I, I did that little intro about you there, but uh, hopefully everyone knows about you because you are the most viewed speaker on the Biohackers Lab channel on the YouTube. So you just, <laughs> <laughs> every day there's hundreds of people that just hit that video and they just want to know more about Dr. Ben Beckman and what, what his thoughts are. So I'm, so I'm glad to have you on again. Oh, that's fun. I, I, I guess, I guess people, there's just something about a shiny bald head that just people just can't, can't stay away. <laughs> well, don't worry. This interview is not about uh, shiny bald heads. But, yeah. <laughs> Although uh, all the, all the worse for it. It ought to be, it yes. ought to be. <laughs> so I'm going to, my, my first question for you then is your book, why we get sick. Um, why is it that we get sick then? What's, what's the answer to it? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, thanks. Thanks for asking. Thanks for mentioning it. Uh, this has, it was a labor of love, really. So I, let me just do a little background. I ended up, my university every summer does this event called Education Week, where they just have experts um, from the community and including the university um, able to teach a week of a class whatever the topic is, and there's all kinds of topics. So about five years ago, I decided to just take some of the, the most distilled sort of purest points about insulin resistance that I'd ever taught in my class as a professor and, and really just try to present this to the public in a non-academic setting, um, which is, and this became the, the essence of the book, um, what is insulin resistance? Why does it matter? And that touches on the why we get sick, and we can get into that. And then what to do about it. So sort of three parts. And and the, over the course of that week, five years ago, um, it not only was very well received, but so many people said, um, can, where can we get your book? Where can we get your book? And I thought, maybe I ought to just write a book. And it it was a wonderful opportunity and challenge to bring it all into you know, a very lucid um, compilation of, of thoughts and scientific references. So why we get sick, I contend that much of chronic disease, non-infectious, of course, is in some way connected to insulin resistance. This one single, one single problem. So you imagine this sort of this, this tree of illness and all these different disorders that we focus on by looking at the branches, we're looking at hypertension, we're looking at infertility, we're looking at dementia, migraines in some instances. And we would want to, conventional medicine would have us just treating each of those separate disorders individually. And yet, when we can acknowledge that there is, to varying degrees, a connection with one single disorder with insulin resistance, then we can just address the insulin resistance and start taking care of all of the seemingly distinct disorders. Uh, it's, so it's a way to reframe our perspective with regards to modern disease. So uh, it's, 
you really can almost just throw a, a, a dart at a dartboard of illness in whichever one it hits. Um, erectile dysfunction. Yep, that's one of the earliest signs of insulin resistance in many men. Uh, I had mentioned uh, infertility, so polycystic ovarian syndrome in women. That is at its core a disease of too much insulin, which happens with insulin resistance um, coming to the ovaries and inhibiting the ovaries' ability to make estrogens. Hypertension, I had mentioned, is almost always somehow connected to insulin resistance and, and, and many, many other disorders. And so is that why then lifestyle intervention, so the, what you eat, is such a major part of improving your health? Yeah, that's right. That is one of the things I hope people take away from that overall message. If someone can appreciate that insulin resistance is a key driver of most diseases, then they can lean in to the fact that lifestyle changes really make a powerful change in insulin resistance, where uh, there are papers published showing that people um, who are on um, anti-diabetic medications because their insulin resistance is so bad, they have to drop their medications just within just within a matter of a couple of weeks. The insulin sensitivity gets so better, so much better, so quickly. Yeah, and I guess that's the key thing I'm hearing here too is that you know most of the time we just think in, if I have an insulin problem, I'm going to have a diabetes problem. But what you're saying here is if you have an insulin problem it's not just diabetes you could actually come up with one of these other con named right. conditions before you get classified as diabetic or if you even get classified as diabetic that's right and that is a big if uh, I, uh, most based on just normal statistics that we have available the prevalence of insulin resistance versus type 2 diabetes it is obvious that most people with insulin resistance will not progress all the way to type 2 diabetes all the more reason to um, not look at insulin resistance as just a diabetic progression, look at it as a progression to multiple diseases, and we can focus on it outside the context of diabetes. You know, for example, focusing on it in the context of heart disease, which is such a, a main killer, even focusing on it in the context of certain cancers like breast and prostate cancers, which appear to be very affected by the insulin resistance status of the individual. So yeah, if, if we can remove insulin resistance from just uh, the world of diabetes, uh, then we can, I would argue, start to look earlier in the progression of all, I mean, all the other disorders that insulin resistance is connected to. And in your book, do you go again into the detail of how a lay person can try work with their physician to understand, do they have insulin resistance? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So we, I mentioned a few tests in the book and give details with regards to the utility of measuring fasting insulin itself, which is very rarely done, but does have some utility, although it's not perfect. And then the best of all, measuring insulin when possible in the context of a, of a glucose challenge. So if the person drinks glucose and if they can just have a couple blood samples and measure insulin from those blood samples at a couple time points, um, then they're really uh, they're really getting uh, some predictive value. Yeah, and I think I saw a tweet from Dr. Anne, um, and she showed how someone had a normal glucose level, but if well, if you measured their insulin, they actually had a massive insulin spike. But so they would, if you just measured their glucose, they would have looked normal, but the insulin response didn't look normal. That's right. Yep, and that is so often just uh, if there's any. If there's any one message I hope anyone ever takes away from hearing me talk in any venue, it is the the need to look at insulin, that we just can't continue to 
Of course, in the context of diabetes, we always look at glucose. That is, in fact, how we define the disease. And I think that's unfortunate. But we need to shift the focus to insulin, not only for the sake of earlier and better treatment and diagnosis for diabetes, but for many other disorders as well. Yeah. And it sounds like here you could do the oral glucose tolerance test, not just to say you're diabetic, but actually if you have an illness, as you mentioned, one of these other conditions, you could add in the validation with, a, with this test to show, actually, I need a major lifestyle intervention because my hypertension, my high blood pressure yes. is, I've got a big problem here. I can see it through this test. Yep, yep that's right. And so when, when the person, and hypertension is so common, rather than give them an antihypertensive medication that's blocking other hormones or trying to push the, the water from the kidneys, just then say, all right, let's lower your insulin. And then the, the healthcare practitioner would know when we lower insulin, we can lower aldosterone, which is the hormone that's telling the kidneys to hold on to all the water and the salt. And then rather than take a drug that will block what aldosterone is trying to do, which there is, just lower aldosterone on its own by allowing insulin to come down. And now you're resolving the hypertension. So that one is a very strong connection in particular. Yeah. And I mean, these are, I'm just thinking of common conditions that everyone's probably heard of. Um, and high blood pressure is a simple thing that I think a lot of people have had. Um, kidney health too. I mean, people do suffer chron chronic kidney disease. Is insulin related to kidney health? Yeah. So insulin does change how kidneys handle urea. Uh, for example, if in insulin resistance, the kidneys uh, release less urea into the urine, and thus the body is holding onto it. And that, of, of course, becomes part of the, um, that's an early form of what will become uric acid, uh, although that gets us into a different disorder. But yeah, the kidneys are influenced not only by uh, urea handling with insulin resistance, but also the pH. Um, in insulin resistance, the pH of the urine changes and actually increases the risk of stone formation, which may I hope I never get. Uh, yeah, that's by all accounts is the most you know painful thing you can have happen. Interesting. So if someone suffers uh, kidney stones, then it could it could be yeah. that that is one of those disorders where I'm not at all attempting to say it's only insulin resistance. No, there could be many other variables, but that is one. Yeah. But yeah, as a simplicity test, it sounds like, again, the oral glucose tolerance test with, an, with added insulin testing is so good as a baseline, not only for diabetes, but just all these other types of conditions. Yeah. 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 Like, for example, Alzheimer's disease, that is one of those diseases that really terrifies me. And uh, the, the evidence suggesting that insulin resistance is an early indicator, and, and that is altering the way the brain accesses glucose. And so there's this very early detectable change in brain glucose use in people before they have any diagnosed Alzheimer's disease that later becomes Alzheimer's. Mm. And I, I think I like that because uh, Alzheimer's and I'm guessing even age-related dementia, um, just basic brain health. If you want to see how well your brain is aging, you could see how uh, well do you have insulin resistance? So as you're aging, if, if brain health is an important factor for you, which I think most people is, doing a basic weight test to see if you've got insulin resistance is, a, is another key signal to say, yeah, your brain is, is, a, is on a good path as you age. Yeah, yeah. So there was a study um, that found that for every, I think it was for every 10 years, someone had type 2 diabetes, which as we know is at its core insulin resistance. Uh, the brain was two years older than it should have been compared to the, you know, the same age 
person without the disease. So this insulin resistant state is prematurely aging the brain or it's accelerating the aging. Yeah. Yeah. And I get, you know, I could think of other neurology. I mean, the brain's one mess, but could be so many other things. Um, so that get, um, gets me thinking, cause we're going to move on into diet stuff here, mm-hmm. uh, which everyone loves cause they can, it's actionable and they can do it. Yeah. And we're speaking currently in January, which is world carnival month. And I've had a lot of questions of people asking, okay, can you ask Dr. Beckman about the whole insulin and protein thing again? Yeah. Because, you know, they, they want to know, hey, I'm doing all this and it looks like I'm getting healthy and I'm seeing all these success stories of people going carnival, but protein, you know, a lot of protein can cause an insulin response. Um, any thoughts yeah. on, on that, on the carnival diet and insulin yeah. resistance? Yeah, I sure do. Um, uh, so uh, a lot of, I made that an effort of, of research a, a few years ago, and, and it was not my findings. These were, I was relying on the findings of earlier scientists. So these, these were questions that had been asked and answered. Um, although my lab is just starting up a slightly altered version of that study, which we can um, come back to in a moment. But the, the sum of the data was that if you load the body with um, amino acids, so protein, because it's the amino acid that's going to have the insulin effect or not. So if, you, uh, if the blood is enriched with amino acids and the glucose level is elevated, um, then the insulin spike from the glucose is amplified significantly with the, car- with the protein. So the protein combined with, with carbohydrate um, is, is insulinogenic. That will spike the uh, insulin level higher. In contrast, if it is a protein spike or, or an amino acid load without a glucose load, then there is no significant spike in insulin. There's a little hiccup of the, as the amino acids come past the pancreas, and, but it's, not, it's nothing like what you had in the hyperglycemic state. And a part of this is <clears throat> uh, really the, the likely reason for this, if we try to find a rational reason, which is fun to try to do, why is the body working that way? We know that it does, and then we ask, well, why? We go one step further to try to see the design or the reason for it. Uh, In that case, when someone is eating glucose, they can have uh, glucose with protein. It makes sense to stimulate insulin to try to say, hey, we are loaded with nutrient right now in the blood. Let's get this out. Let's push it into all the tissues. And that really is what insulin is facilitating, among many other things. It is at its core anabolic and, and it wants to, so it needs material to be pushed into the cells and, and, and insulin will facilitate that process, thus giving some reason for insulin being even higher when there's high glucose and high amino acid. In contrast, if there's high amino acid but low glucose in the diet, then the liver is very busily making glucose uh, through this process of gluconeogenesis. Uh, and, and that's healthy. It needs to happen in order to maintain normal glycemia, which happens in World Carnivore Month. If someone's eating zero carbohydrate, they'll notice that their blood glucose levels are perfectly normal. That's because of the liver's ability to pull almost, it's almost totally from lactate, importantly. It's not, it's very rarely from amino acids. But the, the liver will pull in lactate and convert that lactate into glucose. But that can't happen unless insulin is low. And so, to kind of wrap this idea up, if, glucose, if dietary glucose is low, but dietary protein is elevated, 
we cannot afford to have insulin being spiked because that would prevent the liver's ability in this low dietary glucose state from making glucose because insulin turns that off. So we have separated that, that event. So if protein is high, but glucose is, or carbohydrate is low, insulin stays low so that the liver can continue to make glucose from lactate and other precursor molecules, but mostly lactate. Okay, so someone who um, does have insulin resistance, if they go on, a, on something like that carnivore diet experiment, it's actually not a bad thing because it could help them try to get more insulin sensitivity? I would suspect that would be the case very strongly, yes. Now, of course, I'm not their doctor. Neither of us is. Um, But yes, I would suspect if someone has insulin resistance and they adopted a a zero-carbohydrate diet, and again, I'm not telling anyone to do it, but I imagine they would have pretty profound improvements in insulin resistance quite quite quickly. Yeah. So, yeah, because I guess... I mean, we talked about it in our last interview and how a low-carbohydrate diet seems to be the, the more sustainable diet when it comes to uh, managing your insulin over, over time. Um, carnivore diet is just another ex- form or extreme version of a low-carbohydrate diet. It is. Yeah. yeah, and one thing I will say in defense of a carnivore diet, to defend it but not advocate it, it, it is that there's something wonderfully just pure about it. Uh, there, you are not eating any processed food. Uh, everything you're eating is just real, substantial food. There's a, a a real part of me that appreciates that part of the diet. That there's nothing fake about it. Um, but yeah, for the for the sake of the average individual, a, a low carbohydrate diet um, is far more um, realistic, achievable. I can say, uh, attempting to adhere to a carnivore diet in a family with a wife and little kids, that, that is a challenge in and of itself. That that's, so I, if I'm projecting that to the average individual who's insulin resistant and wanting to try things, I I suspect as powerful as the carnivore diet could be and, and very, very likely is you don't have to go that far. We know from earlier publications that if you put um, people on a, a low carb versus a low fat diet, and the low carb diet can be calorie unrestricted. Their insulin levels will come down four times more than the insulin drop you have in the low fat diet. So just low carb is extremely powerful for lowering insulin, which itself is evidence of the body becoming more insulin sensitive. It just doesn't need as much insulin to get the job done. And that is powerful. Mm-hmm. And then another question that people wanted me to ask was about ketone levels when you're carnivore too, because some people don't have high ketone levels when they're carnivore. But now they're wondering, is it because, because uh, we talked about key, your levels of ketones and mm-hmm. insulin using it as a um, surrogate marker. Yeah. So, so if, I, if I'm if i eating a strict carnivore diet, but I don't have high ketone levels, it, it, what do you think is happening with my insulin levels? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. What I suspect happens in the person is that their ketone levels are probably quite high at the beginning of the carnivore experiment, and then they start to steadily go down. Like almost this sort of diminishing returns. Uh, that also reflects the diminishing utility in using ketones themselves as an inverse indicator of insulin. So one of the problems is the person is just adapting to using their ketones better. So a high level of ketone in the blood simply means you're making more ketone than you're using. That's not optimal. Um, over time, accordingly, the body um, being um, 
abhorring anything that's not optimal starts to use more of this nutrient that's being produced, namely the ketones. So the fact that ketones, I, I suspect strongly, would be higher at the beginning of the experiment and within maybe a couple of weeks, they're now lower and the person's having a hard time achieving that same level of ketosis. I would say that's not the protein um, inhibiting ketogenesis. It's rather an enhanced utilization of the ketones themselves. Okay, so, so you don't have to be at the 1.5 millimolar nutritional ketosis level here it's actually you're probably at either low to the low point somethings and that's yeah. a healthy state oh i would absolutely say it is yeah okay and then i want to get into fat because mm -hmm. i know you 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 uh, have a, a few ideas around fat but the first part of fat i want to get into is i got to interview brad marshall recently around his croissant diet and mm -hmm. how he was adding stearic acid to croissants and making them very fatty. Um, what are your thoughts there from a insulin response and what, what could happen there by adding all these saturated fats and particularly stearic acid along with carbohydrate and what it's doing to the body? Yeah. Um, now, I, uh, not knowing any of the details of his, of his um, blood biochemistry, um, although I had heard about that experiment, stearic acid is an interesting fatty acid. It's um, particularly enriched in chocolate or, or cocoa beans. And it has a higher oxidative priority than, than palmitate, which is the most common saturated fat that we eat. Um, by that, I mean, when a person eats long chain fats, all the way from like omega-6 and omega-3s, um, or, or longer than that, I should say, uh, as they start going down to um, to stearic acid, which is 18 carbons, and so too are um, uh, alpha-linolenic acid, which is an omega-3, and linoleic acid, which is an omega-6. And then you go on shorter to, or you start to break off the unsaturation. So you take the 18-carbon polyunsaturated fat, and then you turn it into the purely saturated fat 18-carbon, which is stearic acid. Alpha-linolenic acid I promise I'll make this relevant and clear. So if we look at when, when a person eats a diet of mixed fats, which we do all the time, certain fats are burned more readily than other fats, whereas other fats are stored more readily than they are burned. Palmitate is a fat that the body likes to store. Stearic acid is a, and, and thus, if you look at the long chain fats, uh, palmitate is the one that is the least burned. So the body will burn it last, if you will. If, if you eat the, all these mixed fats and they're all kind of lining up and forming a queue to get on the fat-burning bus, um, palmitate will be at the back. Ahead of that will be stearic acid. So this is a fat that is more preferentially burned than palmitate or palmitic acid is. Um, interestingly, the alpha-linolenic acid from, from like flaxseed is the most burned of all of them. The body has a very high preference to burn that, but that's kind of beside the point. So I, I wonder whether some of his improvements come from the body being forced to burn a fat now that it didn't have to before. And that is a necessary part of someone becoming fat adapted, which itself is a part of something uh, we, that we refer to as metabolic flexibility. And at the risk of introducing you know, a, a, another idea into this answer, one of the problems in the modern world, especially in someone with insulin resistance, is that they are losing their metabolic flexibility. The body is very much a hybrid engine burning fat and carbohydrate. As the person starts to have a higher intensity of an activity, 
the body will burn more and more fat in contrast, or sorry, more and more glucose. In contrast, as intensity starts to subside, like you and I sitting here, the body's predominantly burning fat. And the ability to shift between these fuels as intensity is going up using glucose or down using fat is metabolic flexibility. In contrast, the person with insulin resistance and beyond, they're stuck in what I say sugar burning mode. They're stuck in glucose burning mode. So even if they were to sit down like us and talk, Whereas our metabolic fuel starts to shift more towards fat, they're stuck burning, burning glucose. A part of that could just be an inability of, well, at the risk of oversimplifying it, mitochondria that are just reluctant to burn fat. The fact that stearic acid demands be, to be burned more than palmitic acid does, which is the conventionally predominant saturated fat in our diet, it could that then could lead to the, the mitochondria in the body, and I would say particularly the muscle cells, um, getting the signal, hey, there's a fat coming in now that we have to burn. Let's build up all the metabolic machinery to burn this fat more. So activate the production of more mitochondria, um, put in place uh, more of the enzymes involved in, in, in the burning of the fat ultimately. Okay. So what you were just mentioning there, is it a good thing that we're um – exposed to a variety of fats then to maintain our health? Oh, yeah. Yes. That's a great question. I'm glad you brought it up. Yes. I argue that it is absolutely healthy. Our diet has, has shrunk almost completely to long chain fats. And that's kind of palmitate and, and, and to lesser degree stearate or stearic acid. What we, what those in the low carb community have started eating more medium chain fats and that's when you have like 12 carbons to around six carbons or so. Um, and, and those are in, in medium chain triglycerides or MCT. But in the diet, conventionally, they're, they're not too prevalent unless you're seeking them out. Coconut oil, however, is a very good source of, of medium chain fats. And then lastly, we have almost a completely forgotten um, family or, or, you know, kid, the third, you know, the, uh, the third kid in the family, the short chain fats. Those used to be much more prevalent because we get those from bacteria. Now, interestingly, there's two sources of these in the body. <clears throat> One is that our gut bacteria make them. So our gut bacteria can take fiber, particularly soluble fiber, and, and turn it into um, short-chain fats. Uh, and then we, those can get absorbed into the bloodstream. And they're very beneficial. They increase some things I just mentioned, mitochondrial biogenesis. They're very ketogenic. Um, so the, the, the bacteria in our guts can make them. Now, I can't tell you which family of bacteria in the, in the, of the millions. There all, it seems like there always are. Um, and I would encourage anyone listening to this, anytime someone's speaking about gut bacteria with too much certainty, be very skeptical. Because the more I learn about the gut bacteria, the more I think we just don't really know much yet. I'm not saying they're not important, but I don't think, we, I don't think we've cracked that code yet. But nevertheless... Short-chain fats can come from dietary fiber that is metabolized. Now, second, and what I believe is the lost part of the diet, it is that uh, we don't have any fermented foods in our, in our diet anymore, very, very rarely. Our early ancestors would have certainly fermented um, whatever they could. And even things like, like wine itself, that's a fermented food. Um, vinegar, apple cider vinegar is you know, when wine has been even one step further fermented, and I'm a huge advocate of apple cider vinegar, it has 
demonstrable improvements on insulin sensitivity in, in, type, in people with type 2 diabetes. You can just give them a couple tablespoons a day and do nothing else and their insulin sensitivity starts to get better. So incorporating those short chain fats into the diet, <clears throat> um, I believe is very important. Uh, and uh, the medium chain fats, which again, in the low carb ketogenic diet community are more appreciated, um, but, but finding ways to incorporate those. And then the long chain fats will always get. And then earlier I'd mentioned the kind of oxidative priority Q line getting on the fat burning bus. These short chain fats, there's no, I'm unaware of any capacity in the body to store those. So when we eat short chain fats or we get them into our blood, we have to burn them. And, and that might be part of the reason why the liver and other tissues start to develop so many more mitochondria. It's because if they're seeing a lot of those short chain fats, the body's not going to store them. They're going to burn, the, they're going to burn them. Medium chain fats can be stored a little, uh, but they're far more preferentially oxidized. And there also isn't a rate limiter on either of these, the short or the medium chain. If they come into the cell, which they do very readily, they also very readily move right into the mitochondria. They don't need an escort to get from the outside the mitochondria in the mitochondria to be burned. In stark contrast to the long chain fats, there is an escort. There's a molecule that waits for them essentially at the surface of the mitochondria and then will bring them in. So they have to be escorted in. <clears throat> and so the rate at which you're burning those is going to be less than what you're burning the sh with which you're burning the short and medium because the short and medium will just come in as quickly as they want. The long chain, it's kind of throttled by this, this transporter uh, that, that will be bringing them in to be burned, you know, very orderly. Mm -hmm. And then, so when it comes to vegetable oils, which um, everyone also tries to avoid and talks about so much in the community, where do they fall into this picture? Yeah, yeah. So uh, well, invoking vegetable oils means we discuss linoleic acid. That is, uh, the, an, uh, it's again an 18-carbon like stearic acid is, um, but this is a polyunsaturated omega-6. <clears throat> it is essential in the diet. So just to make that clear, we do need um, omega-6 fats, just like we need omega-3. And, and so it's a good thing then that they're everywhere. Um, any fat you eat from a natural source, like an animal source, is going to have linoleic acid in it. And, and of course, those are fats that we've eaten since the beginning of time um, as a species. So we're going to get enough. We don't need a lot. We're going to get enough. The problem now is that uh, at least in the U.S., and I'm sure um, it's similar around the, the Western diet eating world, which is far beyond the West these days, um, as I've spoken throughout Asia and the Middle East. Um, but uh, the uh, linoleic acid from soybean oil, soybean oil itself has become the single most consumed fat in, in the human diet. It went from nothing 100 years ago. And I mean it, there's some pretty compelling there's one compelling figure that I'm thinking of right now, looking at um, U.S. dietary consumption, where this fat went from just zero in around 1910, 1920, started to climb, 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 and now it beats out any other single source of fat in the diet. So we eat more soybean oil, more fat as soybean oil than any other fat in, in the Western diet. And that is, it ought to be shocking, particularly when we appreciate that this fat, linoleic acid, is also exceedingly well, I'm going to use a word I have before in this conversation, but I'm going to use it differently. It's exceedingly well oxidized. Now, when I said oxidized earlier about burning a fat, 
to be clear, I should have said beta oxidized. So beta oxidation is the process of taking a fat and breaking it down to burn it. In contrast, when you have a fat that is just purely oxidized, by that I mean it has bumped into a reactive oxygen molecule, like oxidative stress molecules. And this oxidative stress molecule has now kind of conveyed that oxidative stress onto the fat. And linoleic acid is very well oxidized, uh, which is not a good thing. Uh, it means it becomes pathogenic and dangerous very quickly. And it becomes this molecule called 4-hydroxynonenol. 4-H&E. And among other things, 4-H&E will make fat cells very sick um, and, and force them to grow through a manner of hypertrophy. So people will talk about the personal fat threshold, and I think rightly so, um, where it's this idea that a person's body has a certain fat level beyond which it now starts to become metabolically sick, namely insulin resistance. I believe we can look at that personal fat threshold at the level of the fat cell and essentially, if a fat cell is growing through hypertrophy rather than the fat tissue growing through hyperplasia, so making more fat cells, that is bad. Hypertrophy is a sick, a hypertrophic fat cell is a sick fat cell. Hyperplastic fat cells are healthy. They might be, the person may be fatter than they want to be, but they're going to be very insulin sensitive and metabolically fine. Linoleic acid, once it's oxidized to 4-H&E, um, and we have that product of 4-H&E, it pushes the fat cells to hypertrophic growth and blocks the hyperplastic growth. So if someone's eating a diet that's wanting their fat cells to get big, so they have ample calories and they have insulin being elevated, the fat tissue is going to want to grow to store that energy. And insulin tells the body to store energy. If 4-H&E is high because of high, say, soybean oil consumption, it's going to push that fat growth through hypertrophy, which is decidedly unhealthy. Um, in contrast, the person who's avoiding seed oils but still eating um, foods that are going to keep their insulin too high and calories that are too high, um, then they're in ample calories to support that growth. The, the fat cells will more likely grow through hyperplastic expansion. Interesting. So taking us back to the, uh, the bakery, if you've got baked goods and there's all these oxidized, badly oxidized vegetables mm -hmm. made in the process there um, plus you're getting all this carbohydrate and you're going to get an insulin lift you're, you're getting a double whammy because you're going to be stimulating yes. through the carbohydrate plus the way the food is made has got these um, oxidized oils and as you're saying that's actually causing a f individual fat cells to want to grow bigger versus growing more fat cells so the hypertrophy scenario and that's just like a yeah, a combination that's just not good for us. Oh, yeah. I'd say it's a perfect storm. But yeah. you made me think of another idea. If I were to get croissants here in the U.S., I guarantee the main fat is probably going to be some soybean oil or some form, corn oil or something, some seed oil, as opposed to that guy's experiment where he is deliberately enriching the croissants with a non-seed oil fat with stearic acid. Um, and not only is it not eliciting that same um, disastrous effect on the fat cells, but it also is again um, so readily burned. Yeah. Uh, that could be a part of another part of the magic that he saw. Yeah, and Brad also talks about that because he's um, he's been a pig farmer and how the, the the feed to the pigs has changed so much and um, the quality of the fat, um, the difference between European pigs and and American pigs. But mm -hmm. what, what something else I remember is that. Um, it's meant to be that if you've got someone who's got a big tummy, like a fat tummy, it, 
If you prod it, if it's a soft tummy, that's a better indicator than if it's a hard, oh, hard yeah. tummy. So a hard fat versus a soft fat. Is that also tied into this hyperplasia, hypertrophy? Yeah, scenario? actually, it, it, that's actually a different situation where if it's, if it's, I always joke that if it jiggles, it's good. And that's kind of what you're talking about mm-hmm. with regards to is it pokeable or is it not? Um, that's generally going to be a difference of is it, is it, uh, subcutaneous fat or is it visceral fat? So the person whose fat is jiggly and squishy, that is subcutaneous. That's right beneath the skin. Um, That generally is healthier in a number of ways. It has less macrophage invasion, so it's less inflammatory. Typically, it it produces more leptin, which is itself a metabolically beneficial hormone. And then in contrast, if we look at the visceral fat, that is a person whose stomach has fat at one layer deeper in the body, and then it has the muscle over top of it. So the fat is accumulating beneath the muscle layer. So if you poke that person's belly, you're feeling that muscle of the abs, and even it might feel even harder than normal because it's being pushed out and somewhat distended. So that muscle is stretched. And of course, as a muscle is stretched, it is more firm. So in the person who has a big round belly that's hard and you slap it, that's likely a sign of them having more visceral fat. Hmm. Okay. And um, just also bringing this into context here, because we t- we're talking all about insulin resistance. So someone who's on a higher fat diet, the the type of fats they choose to eat is important too from an insulin response point, is it? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, probably, I, I would argue that if someone is you know, I have to, I'm speculating a bit, Gary. That's a good, that's a, an astute question. I don't have a great answer for it because uh, you'd mentioned the insulin spiking effects of the fat, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So dietary fat alone does not increase insulin. So the person will, their insulin, whatever it is before they take the fat, the insulin just hums along as normal. There's no significant bump um, from insulin alone. And some people have shared studies looking at adding fat to an oil adding, sorry, adding oil to a coffee. And there was a little hiccup of insulin, but was not statistically significant. And, and thus we can't say there was a, an effect. I mean, it was so slight and indeed it did not reach statistical significance. In fact, it wasn't, it wasn't even close. Uh, so we, we can't say that was, that there was a difference. So eating fat alone does not change insulin. Now, we don't often just eat fat alone. Now, those in the low carb or especially, I should say, keto community, they do. They may directly add fat to things. And I would just say that if someone's trying to lose weight through low carb diet, then not to do that. Just eat fat as it comes with the real foods you're eating. Indeed, I often just say eat fat as it comes with the protein that you're prioritizing in your diet. But, but nevertheless, uh, the fat alone won't have an effect. And uh, I would say that if someone is eating a fat with an insulin spiking carbohydrate, um, palmitate, which is the most common of the saturated fats, is pr- it may be one to avoid, but that's almost a whole other topic that I don't know if we want to get into. But but in general, I guess it's easy enough just to say, in general, you don't want to be spiking carb- uh, insulin and eating fat. So, uh, you know, something like typically like a croissant would be something to be very careful with, a bagel, you know, that's where it's a, or a donut, high fat and high carbohydrate that's not an optimal mix mm-hmm. it's like throwing a grenade in your body is it yeah 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 metabolic <laughs> grenade that's right <laughs> um i want to ask you about frequency of eating because um bringing this back into the carnivore theme where i've noticed a lot of people 
when they go very strict carnivore, they also tend to go OMAD, so one meal a day. Does Do you think then uh, um, a lot of the benefit is coming from reducing your eating window? So having a 3,000 calorie meal or even bigger in some, for some people, one very small window, what that's doing from an insulin response point of view? Oh, yeah. I am. If someone is wanting to improve insulin sensitivity or maintain it, I strongly contend that an optimal way, an ideal way of doing that is to eat less frequently. Um, the longer a person can go through the day with low insulin, um, I believe the better that will be. Um, if, if, for example, you look at someone who's just woke, waking up in the morning, their insulin levels have had time to lower throughout the night. And indeed, when they wake up in the morning, insulin is, is going to be low. And how unfortunate. And they are burning more fat then than they would have otherwise been burning. Um, and, and that may be evident in some people being in a mild, very mild, low level of ketosis, maybe 0 0.3, 0 0.4 uh, you know, millimolar. That can happen. That is evidence of fat burning. Um, and uh, it, how unfortunate then that they immediately stop that fat burning and go right to sugar burning mode by eating a starchy, sugary breakfast, as so many people do around the world. And then, um, if, especially if they're insulin resistant, their insulin levels have spiked around two to three hours later. Um, if they're insulin resistant, and most adults are, then they will have a rebound very commonly, a rebound hypoglycemia. Even though they're not clinically hypoglycemic, it may just, they're normally burning their normal glucose. Uh, I'm not going to know this in millimolar for any of the Commonwealth listeners. So I'm sorry, I can't. I have to lean into the American in me now. Although I'm from Canada, so I'm ashamed that I can't do this. I'm ashamed. Um, so, well, if I, I'll speak in just general terms. So their, their, their glucose levels are normal. Um, they, they, under, they overshoot. I mean, the insulin release was was not commensurate with the glucose spike, and so now they've over they under they go on below their glucose levels. That period can be sensed as an immediate hunger, and that'll happen two to three hours in. So what do they do? They go have a snack, and that immediately bumps the insulin back up. And then three or so hours later, as the insulin is trying to come back down, they they sense that little relative hypoglycemia again. They bump it up again. They bump it up again. So they're eating six times a day, and there is not a single hint of fat burning for the whole course of the day um, as insulin is elevated. And this, I believe, not only does this have impact with insulin resistance itself, that insulin is elevated all day and insulin itself can create a resistance to itself. Too much insulin causes insulin resistance. But it also is dangerous, I believe, for brain um, disorders where uh, there is this phenomenon that I mentioned earlier of glucose hypometabolism in many neurological disorders. Alzheimer's disease has a detectable reduction in brain glucose use. People who suffer from migraines have a detectable reduction in brain glucose use, same with Parkinson's disease. If those instances are at least partly driven by the brain not being able to get all of its energy through glucose, and there's only one other fuel the brain can use, and that's ketones. And yet, if insulin is elevated every moment of the day, the brain just forced to go without an alternative fuel that it is very desperately hoping it can get. It can get a Tanzan. Eating every two to three hours, we ensure, especially if it's conventional high-carb meals and snacks, uh, we ensure the brain gets no whiff of ketone, and we ensure that we are in sugar-burning mode all day. And if someone's trying to lose weight, 
can't, you don't want to do it through burning sugar. You're not going to do it through burning sugar. You've got to get into fat burning mode and allow insulin to come down. Mm-hmm. So I strongly, so make to make that clear, I am a strong advocate of eating less frequently. If a person at most needs to, they eat three meals per day. And I would argue that many would thrive on simply eating two. And it seems like that seems a natural progression in the success stories that I hear that people fall into that two, sometimes one big one, yep. very, very seldomly three meals in a day. So the one challenge I'll say in one meal a day is I've experimented as well. Um, just because I, I, my priority in life is husband and father, so family matters more than anything. That means dinner time is important because that is the most social time. Um, although my family is such an early morning family, the breakfast is always social as well. But if I didn't eat dinner with my family, it would be weird because we're all sitting there and then I'll be looking at daddy not eating. But if I don't eat breakfast, no one notices at all. There's always just enough of a fuss just getting ready for the day. I always make breakfast for the family in the mornings. And like this morning, it was some little egg, cheese, bacon, muffins. Um, but I was fasting this morning. They don't, they don't notice a bit. No one notices. I'm talking with them. We're all being very social. It's, no one notices. So if I try one meal a day, my point, it ends up being dinner is the meal that I eat. And it is so difficult for me not to overeat to the point that it's going to affect my sleep. And I say that as someone who I'm a terrible sleeper. And I have found without any ambiguity that I have my best night's sleep I go to sleep if I'm not even close to full. I'm just, you know, so, so now I guess my point is I tend to eat a big lunch and then I eat a mild, small dinner, um, whatever the family's eating for dinner. Um, if I can make it for me, low carb easily then I will. But if it's the, the meal, just family happens to be higher carb, I, I'm not going to skip dinner with my family. I, nevertheless, I try to control the portion sizes and that is really easy for me to do if I've had a big lunch. It's easy to keep small dinner and I go to bed with a relatively emptier stomach and I sleep so much better. Not quantifiably better. As I finally bought a little sleep tracker ring, I absolutely, you know, I have the data to validate what I long suspected. Yeah, interesting. So again, that personalization in your case, where, you know, what time of day you eat even affects the quality of your sleep. Yeah, now I would say, Someone listening to this could just be shaking their head saying, no, 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 no. I just do better eating dinner. Hey, awesome. I, I, I'm not at all claiming that my way is the way to do it. I just find I have a hard time controlling my appetite if, if I'm waiting, if everything goes into dinner. Now, I have been able to do it sometimes well, um, but often I get hungry to the point that I overeat and then I won't sleep well. Okay. And um Moving away from eating frequency then, some, actually that gets me thinking, um, you talked about the apple cider vinegar. Is that something that someone can do if they're going to, what you mentioned there, if you happen to be in a family setting and they're eating a higher carb situation, if you put more vinegar on the food, will that have a blunter effect on oh, the yeah. insul- insulin response that you're going to get? Yes, it sure will. It sure will. Yeah. So remember, vinegar is a short chain fat. And, and fat does mitigate some of the insulin effect of a carbohydrate. That, that is real. So yes, if someone is eating a salad or they have the opportunity of adding more oil and vinegar, do it. Alternatively, what I love to do, I, will, I drink a lot of club soda. I love just, just sparkling water. And I will add a shot of apple cider vinegar to that, and that'll be what I'm drinking during the meal. 
Now, it also, in addition to um, a little bit of apple cider vinegar in still or sparkling water, um, a person can put the carbohydrates at the end of the meal. It has a even if they eat the same amount, same grams of carbohydrate, and everything else is the same. There's some a study not long ago published that finds if you put the carbohydrate at the end of the meal, the insulin effect of the overall meal is significantly lower than if the carbs are at the front. Okay, good tip there. Uh, another one that you mentioned about the snacking and how um, this I mentioned I wasn't going to bring about frequency. I just thought of it now, but so try to avoid snacking. But then when someone's going from a place where they're just they it's that hunger problem. They've just been hungry all the time. And now they're going carnivore or ketogenic, whatever it happens to be, to try and get the better response. But they're looking for just things to help them break up the <laughs> hunger in between. <laughs> What's your thoughts then on these on high-fat meal replacements? Yeah, yeah. I think that uh, a high-fat meal replacement shake, which ideally is also going to be high-protein, I'll emphasize that. If it's just pure fat, I don't think that's satiating. So a higher-fat higher protein um, can be very effective, and but it ought to be looked at as a meal, not as a snack. And, and the last thing to do is to have that be a drink that someone's eating with a meal. That is not how those are to be used. Now, full disclosure, um, in the next few months, I have uh, a shake coming out that I've helped make. Um, and someone, you could, that'll be available online, uh, health, H-L-T-H. Um, but what we've deliberately tried to do is put it in a ratio of a one-to-one -one fat to protein by mass um, with an insignificant uh, number of carbs. Net carbs is like two grams. Um, uh, but a one-to-one, -one, that I believe, I joke that that's divine ratio, that we see that in eggs, we see that in steak, which I consider the two most nutritious foods on the planet. By mass, it's this one-to-one -one of fat to protein. Uh, that's uh, that again can be used very effectively it is an easy way to get good nourishment but it shouldn't be used as a snack and never coupled with a normal meal it's not a shake that you're drinking with you know your fries and hamburger that is not a low calorie food it's a meal in and of itself it should be looked at it as such okay so again people who um are not doing carnival this month but they're doing ketogenic then and i, I know the keto shakes are quite popular it sounds like reduced frequency window eating, maybe have the shake to start your day, as you said, but then later in the day, you can have your bigger real food meal. Um, and hopefully there, you're not going to get too, too many insulin responses. From yes. That in your day. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So the power of, say, starting the morning, if someone likes to eat something for breakfast, which I totally understand, focus on protein and fat. Not only are those the two essential macronutrients in the human diet, carbohydrates are not essential. So focus on what's essential, those essential fats, those essential amino acids. But you also have eaten the two macros that have the least or no effect on insulin. Uh, that's a great way to keep the body burning fat and help it maintain a high degree of metabolic flexibility. Yeah. Or otherwise, yeah, lots of scrambled eggs. <laughs> that's yeah, it. right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Scrambled eggs and butter. That's, yes. Uh, that's an easy one. Yes, it sure is. Great. Um, I'm just trying to think. I mean, I got... So many questions that people wanted to ask you. Uh, I'm just trying to think of them offhand. Hopefully, I've, I've covered most of them. Um, I've covered all the big topics, I believe. Is there anything else that's come out around insulin resistance that we haven't visited since our last talk? Um, 
Yeah, well, probably there are. In fact, one study comes right to my mind. Um, as much as we talk about um, carb, uh, glucose and the insulin spike, um, a lot of, there was a really, there's more and more evidence. Another study just published finding that fructose itself, pure fructose, like from fruit juice, is, is really unhealthy for the liver. And it promotes liver fat accumulation and then fat, and then uh, liver insulin resistance. And when the liver becomes insulin resistant, it starts releasing fat and glucose. And, and that, of course, the high glucose is driving the insulin even higher, and that's just feeding the whole systemic insulin resistance. Um, so another encouragement, if we didn't talk about it last time, don't drink fruit. If you want fruit, eat it um, in controlled amounts. Don't, don't drink it ever. Good points. Yeah, perfect. Well, Ben, um, that was, again, a fascinating talk. I learned so much from you <laughs> every time. And hopefully, uh, I've added value to other people who have also listened to your first interview. Um, just a treasure trove of information every time. You, well, you I love the opportunity. I really do. Uh, as an academic, there's one of the most frustrating things about it is you feel like you're learning a lot, answering really neat questions. And if you just publish them in papers, no one ever sees it. And so the opportunity to come on something like a like podcast like you're doing here is such a fun way to convey the little bits, these little pearls of wisdom that I've been able to gather um, through public science, my own and others. Yeah, and that's why I enjoy, you know, because you are, you're on the cutting edge, you're, you're in a lab, you're, you're discovering things, and then you're reading other papers. And so people like me need PhDs like you to be able to read these things and then say, hey, this is what science is finding, and it's up to you to decide what you want to do. So Yep, yeah, well, uh, speaking of which, from my lab, we got some really neat papers that we're in the process of preparing. So we'll have some data looking at how ketones accelerate metabolic rate from fat tissue, and people have heard me talking about that on different talks before. Um, we have data showing how ketones enhance memory and learning in the brain um, through a novel mechanism, so something that's not been published before. We have another paper. Uh, anyway, we have, we have some cool stuff coming out uh, all the time. Fantastic. And yeah, this is the time when I want you to share how people can follow you and keep up to date with all these papers that you're going to be sharing. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So I have um, on, on Twitter and Instagram, I regularly share um, the latest research um, through, through those accounts, and that's Ben Bickman, PhD, and Bickman is K-M-A-N-O-C, Ben Bickman, PhD, that's Instagram. And then Facebook, I have a public profile page, which is just uh, Benjamin Bickman. Um, I think that's what it is. Maybe Benjamin Bickman, PhD. Uh, and I've been trying to give Facebook a little more time. Uh, I find I give it a little bit, and it starts to suck my life. <laughs> Sometimes it's a little too much. Cool. I'm trying to be more accessible there. Yeah. Well, I'll link to all those in the show notes for everyone. But again, Ben, I just want to say thank you again for sharing all your pearls of wisdom. Oh, thanks so much, Gary. What a fun opportunity. Yeah.